You're listening to TIP. He says, like, even people with really high incomes, like lawyers and doctors, tend to not get truly wealthy to the sense of like huge financial independence unless they're very disciplined spenders. And even the ones who do, it's usually because like they've created a small business out of their craft or invested a mass amount in the stock market or something like that. So this gives us a pretty clear goal. On today's show, I chat with Eric Jorgensen about who Naval Ravikant is, why Eric wanted to write a book about him, how his strategy of not making any money out of the book came about, and why he chose to go that route, a bunch of Naval's strategies and principles, the most important thing Eric has learned from Naval, and a ton more. I haven't been following or studying Naval for very long, but in the short time that I have, I've learned a ton. I picked up all versions of Eric's book covering Naval. I have the ebook, the audiobook, and the physical book. I think you guys will enjoy the book and this conversation. So let's dive right in. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Eric Jorgensen. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Robert. I'm psyched to be here. The first thing I want to do is learn a little bit about you and your background. Tell us your story and how you got to where you are today. Grew up in the Midwest, like pretty entrepreneurial small business family, which I feel very grateful for. That was kind of like normal to me to just like that entrepreneur was a job. So I was always the kid like selling candy out of my locker and getting paid to give kids rides to school and stuff. In school, like Facebook was just kind of becoming big. And so I started like messing around with technology a little more, found my way to Silicon Valley. So I worked in tech for a long time and have kind of always had side projects around like reading and writing and learning and just enjoy meeting people in my free time. And that's kind of uh, coming to a culmination now. I feel like, you know, just getting a book out into the world is, I never like intended to do it, but having done it now, it kind of like makes sense how it evolved after how I see how I spend my time. And we're going to spend the majority of the conversation talking about the book and also who the book is about, which is Naval. And I think a lot of people probably know who Naval is, but I don't think everybody does because not that long ago, I didn't know who Naval was. So it's, it's probably probable that not everybody knows who he is. So explain to us who Naval is. It's really interesting because I haven't not, I've not figured out how to predict like who's going to know who Naval is and who isn't, right? Like to me, he's as famous as Beyonce because like I'm in the tech world and the Twitter world and the podcast world. If you're not in any of those worlds, like there's no reason that you would have heard of him, I guess. So Naval, he's a brilliant investor and a founder. He's very widely followed in Silicon Valley. He's the founder of AngelList, probably most notably, which is like, the place people go to find jobs or fundraise or they own product hunt now. So even like launching companies and they're doing all kinds of innovative stuff around financing for startups and different vehicles for investing. So like getting into starting a rolling fund or indexing like the whole world of startups. Like there's a bunch of cool stuff going on in AngelList. But his story is very much like American dream. You know, he moved here as a kid from India, mostly single parent household. Lived in New York, did well in school, like got into good high school and went to Dartmouth. 
but had like a tough first 10 years of his career, like trying different startups and having normal jobs and kind of getting like screwed in different ways, but like learning the ropes and then started writing and blogging and like bootstrapped that up into what became AngelList and made some amazing investments along the way in like Twitter, Uber, MySQL, like Postmates, and was also like quite early to the cryptocurrency world. And maybe he's like equally famous now for his Twitter account, which is like used to be very tech focused. And now is he's just kind of sharing his journey towards like studying all this philosophy and like practical methods for becoming happier. Because probably like 10 years ago, I had this epiphany that's like, okay, I'm, I'm rich and like successful, like I always wanted to be, but I'm still not happy. And if I'm so smart and successful and good at doing things, like why am I not happy? And so started focusing on like studying that as a problem and changing how he lived his life around that goal, which is a very kind of unique and interesting journey. So like people follow him for all kinds of different reasons and hopefully find their way to other ideas, you know, through whatever door they came in. Does he still own and run AngelList? I think he's in like a chairman role. So AngelList is now like kind of a family of companies. So I think he still has a role there, but it's not like day to day. Did he sell the company? Or does he still own a, a big equity piece in it? No, he's. I think he still owns a big equity piece. They have some investors, and I think they've taken some outside capital. But I believe he, you know, still a founder, and they have not sold to any like in whole to anybody, as far as I know. Why did you even want to write a book about Naval? Well, I wasn't sure I was going to start as a book, but I, I basically had this moment of listening to him on Shane Parrish's podcast, which is the Knowledge Project, amazing podcast. And Naval did an incredible interview that I listened to like two or three times. And I have always kind of had this feeling like there's so much value created on the internet that is so ephemeral. Like you can have this tweet that's amazing and could change people's lives if they read it, but it's buried instantly in 24 hours. Like nobody will ever see it again. And, you know, in two years, it's just disappeared from everywhere but your private Twitter archive. And it occurred to me that like what Naval was sharing were these like timeless truths, but he was sharing them in ephemeral kind of media that was just going to disappear. And a lot of my work and writing and hobby is basically like reading and curating and recompiling ideas and just swimming around in that. So I thought about how to maybe preserve those ideas and the value that he was creating and share that with more people in a book. Because a book as a technology is like super, super Lindy, right? It's like, very, very old and very, very widespread and everybody can access it and knows what to do with it. And it's cheap and easily distributable. So a book has like a staying power that I think like to take nothing away from podcasting or Twitter because I love both, but like a book just kind of hits different in that way. You used an interesting strategy for the book too. You gave a lot of it away for free and it didn't seem like you're really doing it to try to make a ton of money from it. And as somebody who's looked into writing books, I know there's not necessarily always a lot of money in books to begin with unless you're, you know, the James Clears of the world and, you know, have these multi-million best-selling books, but still you didn't really set out to make a bunch of money from it using somebody else's name. So talk to us a bit about your strategy and why you chose to go the route that you did. Yeah, I mean I, I think this book is like a, you know, I consider it a public service. Like what I was doing on my blog and stuff before, like almost everything I do I just publish for free and most of the things I read, I consume for free too, right? Like that feels a little bit like the ethos of the internet. It also felt it was a condition of Naval's to say, like, make the digital versions available for free. I want, like, I want it to be clear that 
Naval is not making any money off this. I want to be clear that we are doing everything we can to make it accessible, like the information accessible to everybody. Because I mean, I truly believe like everybody on earth can take one like key idea away from this. Like the principles are so general, but it ended up working out to this kind of like, there's plenty of precedents for giving away free versions of stuff, right? Like the Grateful Dead would like pirate their own albums and stuff. Like, I think there's a lot of value in that. And it's rewarding to see people respond to the information that way. And it's rewarding to see people share it. And I had no idea if like, I would even get like break even on what I invested to like publish a professional looking book here, but I like did. And then some, so it, it was wonderful. And I'm like excited to see that you can both give it away and still like do okay with a project, even publishing books, which as you say, like anybody who's in it for the money is like probably in the wrong spot. There's higher margin, better places to invest your time if like you're trying to do that. Cause yeah, James Clear is a, is a tough act to follow. There's a huge misconception around books. A lot of people think that you can make a ton of money in books. I actually, it's not official yet. And I'm not sure 100% if I'm going to do it, but I'm potentially working on a traditional book deal right now. And one of my friends is like, oh, you're going to be a millionaire. I'm like, no, that is not how this works. I was like, you don't understand the small, very tiny advance you get. And then a very small royalty on like net proceeds. Like it's you don't get rich off of writing books unless, you know, like I said, unless you sell millions of copies. Millions of copies. Yeah, it's part of a weird ecosystem. Cause I feel like there's for some people a book is like a ticket to the speaker series where like if you're doing speaking gigs and stuff, you can make money off those, but they're gonna travel on all the time. So I don't know. Yeah, it's a very I mean, like Amazon owns a lot of the book market, like books are inherently pretty cheap. Nobody's, I shouldn't say nobody, but like it's a power law like anything else, right? Like the top selling authors are doing well, but like the, I don't think there's a big, like healthy middle class in in the book publishing world. I mean, there's the 80, 20 rule. And I would say with book publishing, it's probably even more like 95, five, you know, 5% of people make 95% of the money, if not more. I think there may be something even like, I'm going to get the number wrong, but there's some stat like, Less than one percent of books don't sell more than ten thousand copies or something, and it might even be like a thousand copies. A lot of you want to create a book, and like that's wonderful and transformative, and you should. And I would have gotten value out of this project even if nobody ever bought a single copy or read it, like just because of the rigor that I had to put into like learning these ideas and putting the pieces together. Like that was how it started for me. Honestly, it was just like trying to incept these ideas into my head and like make them part of who I am. And you just do that to a way higher level when you're pushing yourself to make something good enough to publish that you want to put your name on. How were you able to get somebody like Tim Ferriss to write the foreword? I'm still kind of in awe that that happened, but I can't take like, I have no inside info and like, I have no like way to replicate that. Like that has so much more to do with Naval and Tim's friendship and relationship you know, if this was the almanac of Eric Jorgensen, like 0% chance it would have a Tim Ferriss forward. But they have long been friends. And I think it mattered a lot to Tim that we were really militant about the free version and being really clear and distributing it as widely as we could for free or at low cost. So, you know, because he very famously like does not write forwards. So the fact that this is more of like an internet book that's free and available and everything, and that we were like really disciplined about that, I think, let him get comfortable with it in a way that he hasn't been for other projects. Was it something that Naval came to you and said, Hey, I think we could get Tim to write this because I know him. Let's leverage that. Or was it something that you went to Naval and said, Hey, I know you know Tim. Could we potentially leverage that relationship to get the forward? I asked 
just because I thought there was like no better person to kind of bring that together than Tim. I had zero expectations that it would work out. But, you know, after like a few years of working on this, I had like, I definitely hesitated, but I had this moment of like, there's no reason not to ask. Like, I can't think of anyone better and there's no reason not to at least try. Right. What's the downside? I mean, the downside is like being a moose muffin asker and like trying to like overreach and it's easy to say like, yeah, what's the downside? Like, just say no. It's like, yeah, it's fine. But like also really careful to not overstep or push or get greedy on anything like that. And so it still took like, I don't know, it took some effort to get there and feel comfortable and push myself to be like, no, like, let's ask for the number one spot. Let's shoot for the stars and see what happens. Yeah, it's definitely a balancing act for sure. You mentioned that Naval, when you explained who he was and what he's done, he obviously has done a bunch of successful things. And you mentioned that his Twitter account, and I think that's when, at least from an outsider's perspective, that's when he gained a lot of popularity. And I think that really started mostly when one of his Twitter threads went viral. And that thread was when he talked about how to get rich without getting lucky. I want you to break down Naval's framework on how to get rich without getting lucky. So, yeah, that tweet storm definitely like, I think took him to another level. I think it's like one of the most widely shared tweet storms in the world. I don't know if you're looking at it and have like the numbers of impression. I think I saw or heard that it got like 10 million or more impressions. Yeah. I mean, I think it was like 500,000 retweets or something like absolutely insane. But it's also like the most value packed thing you could possibly read word for word. And so that's kind of like, the first like chapter really. And then I spend the next few chapters kind of like unpacking the concepts. Cause if you're not familiar with some of the things, you know, you read the tweet thread and like, if you have folders for like in your head, that like, if you read the word leverage, you know how to expand that into like the next two pages of definition and example and explanation. Like, great. You get a lot out of that tweet. If you don't, you're kind of like, okay, what does that mean? Like, how do I close the gap here? So the principles just to kind of run through them real quick is like, you need to find your specific knowledge. So some combination of your innate talents, your experience that you've lived, your unique perspective, and the things that you actually love to do. You want your own nature and your own interests and your curiosity at your back instead of as a headwind so that you can go farther, faster, and enjoy your time on earth and what you're doing at work every day. And when you are competing with people who don't love what you're doing and you love what you're doing, like you are naturally going to outpace them. And the rewards to being slightly ahead or the top 1% instead of the top 10% are so massive in kind of a world of a global market that every little advantage you can get in that sense kind of tends to pay off. Another is accountability. So being willing to... And let me start with this idea. So like everybody kind of knows like, oh, entrepreneurs take risk. Like You need to take risk to get reward. And Naval reframes this to accountability, which I think is a really important and clever sort of reframe because it's not about like seeking more risk you know like you could go like put it all on black in vegas and like that's seeking risk but it's not smart risk and it's not accountable so the accountability here is like put your own name on your work separate your work from others to the degree that you can where like you know what you are responsible for creating and take accountability, take on like the downside, but manage that downside risk. So in publishing this book, like putting my name on it, putting my work on it, knowing that like I'm ultimately responsible for what happens here. Society tends to not like people who 
share risk, but keep upside for themselves. And so like, that's why everyone's real mad at all the bankers who like took a bailout and then give themselves bonuses because they took on risk. And rather than take accountability for the risk that they got, we all like bled for their wounds and they walked away whole, if not better off. Right. So taking on accountability is just like understanding what you're on the hook for, being intentional about it, being public about it, like talking about the accountability that you're taking on. Another trying to do these like roughly in order is finding leverage. So if you have your specific knowledge and you have accountability and you are finding work that you love to do and you are good at it and you're finding success with it, then it is time to add leverage, which is really like marshalling resources, like tools, code, people capital to increase and amplify like the output of your effort. So some of the people that we all admire and look up to, Bezos and Musk and whatever are the most leveraged people. And we all as a society have been like, that guy really knows what to do with resources. We should give that guy more resources so that he can accomplish more of what he is already getting done. And that happens at a very small scale, even within a company. You know, if a new salesperson comes in who's like demonstrably better than the salesperson before and the person who's more effective like asks for more resources management is going to say like yeah sure like we want to amplify your effort we want to give you everything that you can to be more successful and so you constantly see or find yourself when you sort of look at the world through this lens reallocating through leverage and when your growth is stalled out it's usually like a lack of a specific kind of leverage in one of those areas that you might have a blind spot to let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. 
Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Equity is another piece that Naval talks about that's really important. And he even goes so far to say that if you don't have equity in a business, then you don't have a path towards financial freedom. Talk to us a little bit more about that idea. I like that idea. And I found it really helpful because it's less abstract than some of these other principles. You know, it's like it gives you a very clear goal, like build or buy equity in a business. He says, like, even people with really high incomes, like lawyers and doctors, tend to not get truly wealthy to the sense of like huge financial independence unless they're very disciplined spenders. And even the ones who do, it's usually because like they've created a small business out of their craft or invested a mass amount in the stock market or something like that. So this gives us a pretty clear goal. And I should say, like, there's a lot of ways to accomplish it. Like buying stock market index is a way to build equity in many businesses. Starting your own small business that you are the 100% owner of and you're just mowing lawns, like that is a way to build equity in a business. Getting stock options in a startup or co-founding a business with somebody else. Like all of these are different ways that you can access equity, even if you don't have the capital to invest necessarily, like a venture capitalist or an angel investor. And that like equity is itself leverage, right? Like when you own a share of Apple, like all of those people and capital and resources at Apple are like working on your behalf to increase your investment. So that money is like out working for you and increasing your leverage. And as you can sort of compound that leverage, that will grow to a really staggering place if you are patient and diligent about it. I also really like Naval's thoughts on a 40-hour work week. And that's I'm probably a little biased there because I, I tend to agree with Naval. I, I don't necessarily believe in a 40-hour work week and I never really have, I don't think. So why does Naval think that this idea of a 40-hour work week is outdated and instead we should train and work like athletes? I think it's got to do with leverage and with power law outcomes. And when you see, especially in the startup world, and if you look at Naval's like lived experience, he's like probably made like four hours of work into the decision to invest in Uber. And that's been like maybe a highly dominating decision to make more money in that one four hours of work than the whole like, I don't know, hundreds of hours of work into some other projects or the whole rest of the portfolio or something like that. And so from that perspective, it's really easy to see how like the number of hours that you work is irrelevant. Doesn't mean you might not have had that opportunity if you weren't working hard, but the specific 40 hours, I think his analogy is like, you know, the lion and the antelope, like the antelope spends eight hours a day eating grass and the lion sleeps for 20 hours and then like wakes up and runs really fast for five minutes, eats the antelope, gets to process all of the work that the antelope did to turn that grass into high caloric density. And then the lion like goes and sleeps again, but the lion works very hard for five minutes instead of like mediumly hard for eight hours. It's a good way to visualize it at least. And it's good to recognize that a huge percentage of your outcome, your outcomes and your inputs are disconnected and you should find ways to make that true. You know, if you're working a customer service job and like your inputs and your outputs are very linear correlated, like you're not going to in one of those, you know, 40 hours a week, like suddenly make $500 an hour. You're going to be very like steadily working and steadily compensated and you're the antelope in that situation. But the owner of that business maybe is the lion in that situation. Do you think Naval's idea or thoughts around the 40-hour work week were influenced by Tim? We talked about their good friends. He even wrote the foreword to the book. Tim obviously wrote the book on the 4-hour work week. I wonder if there's any influence there. Maybe. 
I wouldn't be surprised. And I know they've been friends for a long time. I also think people of that mindset tend to kind of flock together. So I don't know where it started. And I, you know, I think Naval is probably not original in the thought that the 40 hour work week may be an artificial construct of the industrial era and like we may be beyond it. But, you know, that comes from a lot of different places. A lot of people bring their own experience or stories to that observation. And, and we may see that continue now that, like, you know, we got more remote work and more sort of like fractionalized employment. We might see that change a lot more than the variety of options available to us change. I liked a lot of things from the book, but I think one of the quotes that probably stuck with me the most is when an old boss warned, you'll never be rich since you're obviously smart and someone will offer you a job that's just good enough. Talk to us about this quote and what it means. I think that's a really interesting one. Like, it's just so easy to stay comfortable. And especially when you're like way more comfortable than most people are and have what feels like a very enviable position, right? There's something uncomfortable about being accountable for your own work or starting a new business or taking a leap off that paycheck and just like living on a runway until you can figure out how to make that runway longer. It's hard to do. And I think it tends to be that the longer you wait, the harder it gets. And you know, smart people are like very employable. Like someone's always gonna like offer you a good gig and it's always gonna look tempting when you're, you know, cut, bruised, and battered from being out there like trying to figure it out for yourself along the way. I don't know. It's a good warning. It's a good like sort of like may you live forever, like with your cowardice kind of quote. If that's what's important to you to like live in the arena, go do it. But know that you're always gonna have an option of a like soft, warm, protected bed. And like you gotta choose every day to get out of that and go back to the arena. Why is being a clear thinker more important than being smart? And how do we actually think clearly? I think this is such an underrated chapter. Like everybody just wants to like read the get rich chapter. This can help you get rich though. Totally. And like tends to ignore the whole like section after that about building the judgment that will give you the confidence to and clear thinking to help you on that path. Clear thinking is it's so interesting because it's it's really like not taught. It's kind of like, especially in this sense, like cobbled together. And it's as much about subtraction as it is about adding, right? There's a lot of people, you know, there's like the rationalist community and the mental model sort of faithful of which I am one, right? Like I love reading about mental models and trying to combine different ways to look at problems and kind of different keys to different locks. Like that's fun for me. But some of the stuff that Naval talks about is also about like removing your ego and your identity from the way you approach problems, learning to fight that first instinct to like leap to one solution and then start justifying it. Like we're much better justifiers than we are option listers, like kind of by nature. And so we tend to like find one and then start finding reasons why it's the answer instead of finding like five different answers and then finding reasons why all five of those are good. Like that is a very unnatural act for us. Naval also talks about uh, finding first principles, you know, breaking down the problem as much as you can, figuring out what the root is, what's the real problem, and reframing things until you can be sure that you're, you know, striking at the root, not the branch, I guess is the metaphor. You mentioned mental models, and I feel like that is a total buzzword recently. I feel like there's so many people saying mental models, and I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just, I know it's being thrown around a lot. For a long time, I didn't even know what it meant. It would just be thrown around. And I'm like, I don't even know what a mental model is. So for somebody that's listening that had heard you say that, and they're just like, I don't know what that is. Explain to us what a mental model is. I kind of agree with you. Like, It's not the world's greatest term. And 
I deeply love Charlie Munger, and I think he kind of coined this, but it is not his best coinage. I will say it's better than heuristics, which is like something else that people call it. It's basically metaphors is like not broad enough, basically like tools for thought. It's kind of like a pattern, right? So it's a method of, of problem solving, I guess you could say, where each mental model is like one key and a problem is unlocked by or solved by some combination of keys. So you have to read a fair number of these before you can kind of like see the power of them. And they are only really powerful when you combine a few of them. There's a few books that, or chunks of books that cover this really well. The Nivalmanic has a chapter on mental models and they're pretty short. And it's just a few that Naval has mentioned over the years. The kind of Bible of mental models is Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is like an enormous book, or you can go find his speech. Psychology of Human Misjudgment covers like different mental models. So an example of one is like inversion. Always invert. Always invert. Yeah. This is like a thing that Munger uses. It says is one of the like very core mental models that solves, you would say it carries a lot of freight, right? Like it applies to a lot of problems and it comes from algebra where in order to solve the problem, you have to like reverse the problem. You like move the X to the other side, divide by it. And then all of a sudden it's really clear. If you're trying to work forwards, not backwards, it seems like an impossible problem to solve. So the inversion is rather than asking, how do I solve this problem? Asking, how do I prevent this problem? And you may not be able to solve the current situation, but if you can prevent it from happening again in the future, then all of a sudden the problem will resolve itself over time. And it went from an impossibility to a relatively simple solution. Another might be uh, sample size, right? So, like understanding what's a statistically valid sample size and when you're getting persuaded by something that's more of a story than it is a data set. So, this list has been expanded by a lot of people. The Farnham Street blog does an amazing job with it. George Mack writes some incredible stuff on it. And he's got podcasts with Chris Williamson where they like talk through a bunch of different mental models and have great examples. If you search around, like you'll find some really cool stuff, but it's definitely like it's like renegade academia. It's just like a bunch of smart people kind of like collecting methods for problem solving and trying to like share them with each other. What I like about it is it's very cross-disciplinary, right? There's like mental models from biology, from chemistry, from physics, from engineering, from math. The lattice work is another amazing resource. It's a community I'm a member of. And Blas Moros has collected and written really, really well about different mental models. There's probably 150 on there. But you can go through the core like eight and be a smarter person tomorrow if you just read that website tonight. I'm glad that you mentioned Charlie because I was going to ask you if, you know, given the name of the book, I was wondering if you had been influenced from Charlie, you know, like Charlie's Almanac. Oh, yeah. This, this is like a direct homage. I picked up Poor Charlie's Almanac from my dad's bookshelf when I was 19 and it changed my life. Like it felt like I could see the matrix all of a sudden. And then I went on to like read all the stuff that he recommended. So, like, it wasn't just that that book changed my life, but that he said, okay, now go read like Isaacson's biography of Benjamin Franklin. I was like, sir, yes, sir. Like, went and read it. I was like, okay, now go read Influenced by Cialdini. He's like, okay, go read that. Okay. So, daisy chaining these books of like, I found this brilliant guy whose thinking patterns I really admire and whose wit I think is hilarious. And I started listening to his talks. He's got some commencement speeches. I read the books that he read. I read, you know, I went to the Omaha and like heard him speak at the meetings and stuff. So I just have admired him and learned a lot from him and think there's a lot to gain from having a hero like that. 
and a few heroes like that so that you kind of get a little bit of depth, but trying to learn what they learned in the way that they learned it. And it'll change who you are. And Munger is probably one of the biggest influences on me. For anyone listening that hasn't heard the interview that I had a couple weeks ago now, maybe a month or two with Cialdini, I highly recommend you go back and out because Cialdini was on the show and he told us a story about how his book Influence and Persuasion impacted Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger so much that they gifted him a share of Berkshire Hathaway because the book made such an impact on him. So it's a really cool conversation if you guys want to go learn more. Eric, what I like about your book, I didn't like Poor Charlie Almanac's format. And I don't know if they have different formats, but the one I have is like super wide. It's kind of like a cartoon book almost with like a ton of pictures and stuff. And I just wasn't a huge fan of it, but I I really like the structure that you did in your book. I appreciate that. It's definitely a I don't know, it's a little bit of an inaccessible format. Like Port Charles Almanac, like one, it's like 60 bucks, two, it's a coffee table size book. And there's a lot of kind of like non sequiturs in there. It's a big book. It is comprehensive, but it's not a super tight, well curated, like tight read of that is like insight rich with Charlie's work. It's just not comfortable to sit down and read. Like that's what I just genuinely don't like about it the most. No, it's like the size of a, it's like wearing a blanket. It's heavy and it's, I understand that. So, like, the way around that is just like go read his speeches online or print them out or whatever. The speeches is where like the real value is, I think. Like, that's his mode usually. And you can find him on YouTube and listen to him and stuff. Not only did I really want Naval to enjoy this book, but I also like once I hit upon the idea of calling it the almanac, was like, there's very few things I respect as much as I respect like Charlie Munger and poor Charlie's almanac. It meant a lot to me to put that on the front of the book and make this the title. And I feel like I owe so much to that sort of lineage and like with all humility, hope that this is like a reasonable contribution to that pattern from, you know, that started with Ben Franklin and continued with poor Charlie. And I hope that this is like worthy of being in that conversation and helps people the way that almanac helped me become who I am. You should send a copy of your book to Berkshire Hathaway. Attention to Charlie, if you haven't already. Oh, uh, I should. Yeah. And Peter, who's the person who compiled the Portrait Almanac. Yeah, you should send them both a copy. That's a good idea. Yeah. He might get a kick out of it. You know, you, know, you never know. I mean, there's a chance he throws it in the trash, but there's a chance he, he really likes it. Oh, that's a great idea. I'll do it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with, and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree. 
expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. As someone who has spent so much time studying Naval in the past and also continuously, what do you think has been the most important thing that you've learned from him? It is almost certainly just like a mindset around, you know, I mean, all of the wealth and judgment stuff has changed a little bit about like how I think about my business and how I think about investing my time. It definitely dialed up my like opportunity cost of my time. It made me way more sensitive to like wasting time or doing things that I thought would be either not enjoyable or low value to myself or others. And it also changed like, you know, I was a little bit like bent in this direction already because like, obviously I chose to write a book about this guy whose ideas I tended to mostly agree with, but it definitely pushed me farther in the direction of like this internal locus of control and like the stoic kind of happiness where you're just like choose to accept what exists and understand that like your internal monologue is way more malleable than the outside world. And so some of the best investments you can make of your effort are around training yourself to have a positive perspective and charitable outlook on the whole rest of the world. And just, you know, as, as my friend and mentor says, like, choose your attitude. Like you are in control of that voice in your head. And like, you don't think you are, but understanding that you are, whether, you know, it's not in every instant, but like over the short and medium and long term, like you can train and control that. That's not to trivialize this, not to say it's easy, but it is worth the effort. At the end of each episode, we have a segment called The Action Plan. And I like to ask every guest three questions that give the listeners something, three things to go do when they're done with this episode. I think too many people just consume, consume, consume content and don't actually take action on it. So that's why I created this segment called The Action Plan. So people don't just go to their next episode in their play or pick up the next book, actually take action on everything we've talked about. So brilliant. Love it. Thank you. For the first question, what is a habit or principle that either you follow in your life or that Naval has preached that has had a big impact on success that not enough people do, but they should? I mean, habits and principles are very different things. Either one. A habit that I have is making a to do list every morning that has like, 
two spots for high priority things and infinite spots for low priority things. And I work very hard to make sure that those high priority things get done every day and everything else can fall off and I will be fine with that. But just choosing like having that discipline of what matters in the long run and being damn sure that like the most important thing that day gets done. I think as a principle, if I can have one of each as a principle, like thinking long-term, being really intentional about like where you want to go and understand, like being able to connect the dots going forward. It doesn't mean it all has to be master planned. It shouldn't be, but it should be like better than yesterday, better than yesterday, better than yesterday so that your steps compound on each other. I think I might know the answer to this next question, but what has been the most influential book in your life? It doesn't have to necessarily be your favorite because I think there could be a difference between favorite and influential. What has been the most impactful on you? I mean, Poor Charlie's Almanac is probably it for my adult life. I think the like the starting conditions of the universe, like books are actually like more impactful the earlier you read them in your life because they're a larger sample of what you've taken in. And so I think from that perspective, like I read basically every strip of Calvin and Hobbes as a kid multiple times. And that probably contributed too much to like my personality today. So definitely like those books were very high impact on me also, in part just because of when they got incepted into my head. What is one action that somebody listening to the show should take after this podcast that can help improve their life, career, or business? I think they should build one small lever, which is to take one intentional step to do work that gets more work done later, whether that's start an automated like investing, like set up an automation so that money's pulled from your paycheck and goes into the stock market index every month or every paycheck whether it's buy a tool that makes you meaningfully more effective, whether it's buy some crypto and stake it that you've been meaning to do forever, whether it's write down your personal principles and like stick them to your bathroom mirror in the morning that like makes you more of who you are every day. Just like set aside some a few hours to figure out a thing that's going to be a high leverage solution. You know, if, if you only get one, do one way better than nothing. If you can build that into a habit and like do one of those things every day, your efforts will compound and you'll find yourself like massively more effective in a year or in five years than you are today. And just like getting more work done around you, even though you are not working harder every single day. And the last thing before we wrap up the show is I like to turn the tables and let the guests ask me a question. So what question do you have for me? I feel like we could do a whole nother hour on you because I'm very curious. But a question I like to ask people is, what is your single highest conviction belief? That fitness has a bigger impact on your life and business and success. I guess I would say success. Fitness has a bigger impact on your success than more people think. And I just think that that's so overlooked in so many different facets. And you don't have to be a bodybuilder. You don't have to be an Olympic weightlifter. You know, you don't have to be something like that. I don't want people to take this wrong. Just doing something that makes you sweat every day, I think is something that is so overlooked. And it's a conviction that I believe in. I like that a lot. I feel like I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if that's like a high school thing or a generational thing, but I felt like fitness and success were like at odds with each other. If you look at a lot of the really successful guys, like I'm not being like rude or crude, but like a lot of them were larger guys, like healthy and things. It may have just been that like, you know, the FDA put like jello in the food pyramid for a minute and like we lost sight of that. Like, I don't know where that comes from, but definitely like I'm frustrated by the 
false sort of duality of the like you're either a geek or a jock and like every move you make to live a fitter healthier life is sacrificing your intellectual life or your success in some other domain and i think it's clear to like me and most of the people i hang out with now at the stage of life that like those are very symbiotic and feed each other and compound on each other rather than take from each other i totally agree with you i wish more people understood that and i think they'd live better lives if they did i joke and say that i'm the nerdiest jock or the most athletic nerd that you've ever met because i feel the same way like they're not two like separate things you can be both and i think for me when i think back to where maybe the disconnect was is that i think it has to do with time and like how much people worked right if you look decades ago these people that were super successful they were working the 60 70 80 100 hour work weeks because that's i guess what they thought it took and now if you look at naval like Naval's looks like he's pretty healthy in shape guy. And he's the one that's like saying, Hey, don't work a 40 hour work week. Don't work too much. So I think it's just these, a mindset shift in terms of like how much you have to work. Because if you're working that much, the reality is you probably can't exercise that much. You can't eat healthy food. You got to order into the office. You got to get takeout. And that's not going to lead to a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, there are two things on that. So the one Naval has a really helpful construct through me that I almost opened the book with this because I thought it was so good and so important. Of all of the priorities in my life, like health is the number one. Because if my health falls apart, like I can't take care of my family. My relationships don't matter if I'm not a healthy person. All of a sudden I'm just like that totally flips. Like my financial means do not matter if I am not a healthy person. Like nothing else matters. It's like my workout comes before like unless my house is on fire. I am working out before I'm doing anything else that day. And I thought that was so interesting and helpful framing because it's the conventional wisdom that we all ignore. And the other is like realizing I have some friends who are like deeply, deeply intellectual people. And like the thing that matters to them the most in their life is how smart they are and how good their decisions are and how well their brain works and, you know, their returns or their investments or their writing. And some of them don't, they don't always see that like, a healthy body makes a healthy brain. Like you cannot have the healthiest brain on earth and the highest functioning without like taking care of your brain container, which is the whole rest of your body. Well, that's the piece for me. Like the health is so important. I think more people need the health component, but even like that aside is when I don't exercise, I can't think clearly. I have I lack motivation, et cetera. So if, if you want to just push the health piece aside. Just look at business and being successful in your career or whatever it is. If you just exercise and have a little bit of fitness, you're probably going to be more motivated. You get more stuff done. That leads to more success. So, like, if if you don't believe in necessarily the health piece of it, I at least believe that it could help you in you know motivation and determination and those types of things. Yeah, I was talking to my closest friend here in Kansas City about that, and he's like, we realized like the most successful chapter of our careers was when we were the most focused on our health and basically ignoring our careers, which is like, Naval has seen a similar pattern. It's like, we're just like on this crazy, like bodybuilding program where we're like weighing all our food and like recording every lift and like everything. And we were just obsessed with it for like a few months. And we like looked up at the end of the months and we're like, wow, like we did great work, even though we weren't even really thinking about it. It was such a distant priority to what we were trying to like get done in the gym in the kitchen. Pretty interesting. That's too funny because I literally had the exact same like thought before because I went for like a year and a half, two years trained for a bodybuilding show. And you know, I was doing the same thing. Two days, 
twice a day in the gym, weighing every single food I ate. And then I look back on it now and I'm like, I think that was some of my most productive time. I don't know if it's like been my most successful time because of when it was in my life. Like I was a college student, but Mm -hmm. like I was so productive and I look back on like how much work I did back then versus what I'm able to do now. And I'm just like, it's just so much more when I had that fitness really in check. I don't know if you had this experience, but like for me, just going through that program, even for like a little bit, like I did not become like a bodybuilder. I I still don't live that way, but I learned so much in like that few months of optimizing, like that I just now feel like I totally grok and I'm in control of like my measurements and my nutrition and my body fat percentage and like all of this stuff that just felt like a mysterious, impossible thing before. And then I think it's still a lot of people, it just totally, but very, very clear inputs and outputs on things that people, uh, I think, really struggle to understand sometimes. And mental toughness. Huge discipline. Yeah, huge discipline. Whether you're being a bodybuilder or you're just going for a walk every day, it takes discipline because there's going to be days where you don't want to do that and you just have to do it anyway. And that teaches you a lot and it makes your brain a lot tougher and stronger and that'll help you in business. And the other piece too, I think that sometimes goes overlooked is a difference between the number of hours you're working versus your efficiency. And I think like, let's just say you have two hours to work. You could not exercise in that two hours and just work for two hours straight. But let's say you're not that efficient. But instead, you take 45 minutes of that two hours, go exercise. And now the remaining hour and 15 minutes, you're so efficient. You actually do more in an hour and 15 minutes than you did in the two hours when you didn't exercise. And I kind of relate this to... I forget who the quote came from, but it's like, if I had 10 hours, I'd spend the first nine hours sharpening the axe and then the one hour cutting down the tree. It's kind of the same idea. Yeah. It's like the the Lincoln quote. I mean, like Tim Ferriss talks about as being the like, I think that's the, like the Pareto thing, the 80-20, right? Like when you arrive to work like sharp and amped up and having had time to consider like what the most important thing to do is and you have to do it, like the, the task will fill the time that you allot it. And so if you give yourself an hour to work and an hour to work out, like you will probably get pretty close to the same amount done in an hour as you would too. If it's a really important thing and it's a well-defined task and like you got to get it done and you're prepared, like you can get a lot done in an hour. Yeah, that's Parkinson's law for you. Parkinson's law. Yeah, thank you. So you were pulling each other across the finish line. Yeah. Well, hey, Eric, where can everybody go to find you? Where can they go to pick up the book? I highly recommend it. I was telling Eric before I have the physical copy, I have electronic, audio book, I have everything. So I really enjoy it. I think you guys should go check it out. Where's the best place to find the book and connect with you? So everything for the book is on navalmanac.com with a CK. And you can get the free digital version there. You can buy it on Amazon. The audiobook is available for free on my podcast. So if you search Jorgensen Soundbox, the first six episodes are the audiobook. And then you'll get to like interviews and stuff that I've done. My kind of online home is ejorgensen.com. So I, I write a ton of essays. If you like the Naval book or all of the stuff that we just rambled through, like essays and stuff on there are pretty cool. And I'm on Twitter like way too much. So if you want to just send me a message, whatever, I got open DMs. All right. I will put a link to all those different resources in the show notes below for anybody interested. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Dude, thanks for having me on. This is awesome, Robert. I appreciate it. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. 
Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.